Again, good morning, and glad to see you. And if you and I have not met, my name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here. That was Jake Patton, our other pastor, who was leading us in worship. And it's glad to see you. Glad you're here on a cold, wet winter morning. And uh, if you haven't been here, we're continuing a series in the New Testament in the book of Acts. And if you're not familiar with the New Testament, where this book is located toward the beginning... At the beginning of the New Testament, you get the Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then after that, you get this, this book of Acts. And it really serves as a bridge to show how the Gospel being, um, or belief in Jesus, went from being this thing that was right around Jerusalem to something that started spreading all over the world. Acts tells you how that, how that started to happen. So we've been studying this this winter, and, uh, and we'll continue to in the spring. So let's, let's look at Acts chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin, the passage in the bulletin. Before I read this, let me ask you a question. What was the purpose of Jesus' miracles? Why did he do these miracles? And, you know, if you read the four Gospels, that's where you really see the critical mass of his miracles. Uh, You know, I remember one time I was preaching on a miracle. I preached on the passage about Jesus turning water into wine and just started getting into, you know, why did he do that there at a wedding at the beginning of his ministry? Why did he use water that was in jars where you would have uh, undergone a ritual sort of purification? And we unpacked that. And a guy came up to me afterward, and this was not a guy from an unchurched background. This was not someone who was new to the Bible. He came up afterward and said, I'm so glad that you talked about that because every time I'd ever heard that passage, it just seemed like a parlor trick. You know, it just kind of seemed like Jesus sort of went, and ta-da. Jesus' miracles did things. For instance, number one, um, Jesus' miracles vindicated his claims. Or they were God's way of, of saying, look, this is not a charlatan. This is not a false prophet. But this man is speaking the truth to you. And he needed something like that because he was making claims that no one had ever made before. But I I want you to think about another thing the miracles did. When he healed someone, when he raised someone from the dead, when when he provided food where there was no food, that was an incredible mercy. And, you know, some, some, uh, some scholars have said they think that he may have eradicated diseases in some parts of Judea, some villages. But I want you to think about what, what did those depict? Jesus' miracles were not arbitrary. They were physical depictions on the outsides of people, on their bodies, of things that he, he alone could do to their hearts. So, for instance, if you had somebody who had become deaf or they were born deaf and Jesus went over and touched them or maybe just spoke and gave them hearing, besides that being an incredible mercy for a person, it was a picture to everyone looking, if you will turn to me, if you will look to me and believe me, I can cause your heart to hear. Your heart can't hear yet, but I can cause your heart to hear. When uh, when he raised somebody from the dead, he does that more than once in the gospel. Raise a dead person to life. Transformative, miraculous, game changer. But it was also a picture. You don't know that on your insides you have shown up dead. Not not neutral and not just sick. You have shown up dead. I can raise you to life. And it's a picture that I can really do this. 
And the reason I'm belaboring that point a little bit is that this, we're about to read the account of arguably the most famous conversion in the world, in history. I'm not trying to make one person out to be more important than every other person, but I'm saying that the, the ripple effects, the after effects of the conversion of this man, Saul, whom we come to know as the Apostle Paul, it literally changed the history of the world. It literally changed the content of the Bible. Not the prior content, but it added new content. But I want you to notice something. I want you to, to look at the way Luke frames this account, the way he lets you see it, the details that he includes. Because there's a miracle here. There's a, there's a, there's a radical conversion, but there's a miracle on Saul's outside that Jesus does. And it's not arbitrary. He's showing us something. Okay? Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately... Something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? 
And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived by Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you moved your servant Luke to do all these interviews and get all these details and write these orderly accounts for us and that you moved him to include just what we need to hear. And so um, we, op- we ask that you open up our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts that you would feed us like sheep, sheep who are weak, sheep who are discouraged, sheep who are lame, weary, that you would feed us from your hand and give us hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may have heard the name Rosaria Butterfield or Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She came out with a book a few years ago, and it's very aptly named. The the name of the book is The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. The reason she entitles her book that is that she was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. Her areas were English, literature, and women's studies. And she described herself as a lesbian activist. She said that she was becoming um, what she calls a tenured radical very engaged in the community, very engaged on campus, loved teaching, loved the material, loved working with undergraduates, and was very passionate about uh, her life as someone with uh, same-sex attraction, as someone with a partner, said, I had a very happy, full life with my partner, and advocating for gay rights, and not friendly to Christianity. And I'm going to get to that in a second. And she becomes a Christian. And she says, that surprised no one and shocked no one in my life more than it shocked me. And more about that in a second. But I want you to hear what she says about conversions as somebody who experienced one. She writes, conversion, now, and when I use that word, that's just, just a term for somebody who did not believe in God and specifically did not believe in Jesus being brought to saving faith. Somebody who is not saved being saved. She says, conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. I sometimes wonder when I hear other Christians pray for the salvation of the lost, if they realize that the comprehensive chaos is the desired end of such prayers. Now understand what she's writing. She's saying, if you're a Christian and you have a coworker or a relative or a friend and you you know that person is not a Christian and you pray for that person to be converted. She says, do you understand the chaos you're asking for in his or her life? She goes on, often people ask me to describe the lessons that I learned from this experience. I can't. It was too traumatic. And she has reflected on her, on her conversion, but her perspective is really interesting. And, and I, I, I have heard this from friend after friend, I, I've heard versions of this when, uh, when I've sat down with some of you to hear your story. You know, people who are interested in joining our church, part of the process is to sit down with a, an elder or a pastor and just, just talk about your life, talk about your understanding of the good news. 
You know, person after person has given some version of, you know, things were going just fine. (laughs) I liked my life. Uh, I liked my friends. I liked my work. And then Jesus burst in. And it's this amazing trade-off between there is this supernatural joy and transformation that I can't explain. And he just completely upended the apple cart. You know, any notion I had that, hey, I was carving out this life that's sort of like this broth of, I don't know, Norman Rockwell and Real Simple Magazine or something like that. And I I was carving that out for myself, and uh, and now I'm still carving it out, and I'm going to heaven. No. He turned everything upside down. Saul could relate to that 100%. And there's so much in this passage that I feel like getting into. Uh, just one I've got to mention, just to, just to say this, and community groups can uh, talk about this more, but just the fact, I want you to notice that when the risen Christ addresses Saul, when he begins speaking to him, he could have said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? But what did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And lest there be any doubt, what's the next verse? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Man, the New Testament grabs that theme. Paul's letters grab that theme and run with it. That Jesus is not just this big figurehead teacher. This religion has that one. And this religion has their teacher, their head. We've got Jesus. And we're his followers. Like we're his adherents. He says, no, 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 no. You are united to me. I am the head. And you are the body. I'm the vine. You are the branch. If someone does something to you, they do it to me. I just want us to hear that together. How powerfully Jesus says that. And I wish I could get into the fact that when Ananias meets this man who like until hours ago, days ago, was a sworn enemy of the church. When Jesus sends him that he says, Brother Saul. Just what's there relationally. Um, But what I want to get into is the way that Luke records this account. And it's a truthful account, but of course he can include and not include different details. And did you notice how much the language of eyes and seeing and sight is all through this text? And I want to show you one sentence in particular where where Luke does that. Now again, it's not that he's adding something, but look at the way he frames it. Verse 8. Luke could have just written... uh, And Saul got up and he was blind. But here's the way he writes it. Verse 8. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And that's really important. That he gets up and the detail is Saul has his eyes opened. So that should enable you to see. But even though his eyes are opened, he can't see he's blind. And what Christ is going to do later is... When Saul has his physical eyes open, this thing is going to fall out and then he's going to see. And like we were talking about earlier, what I want us to notice is that that's not a parlor trick. That is Jesus saying something. That until I open your eyes, until I give you real sight, like heart sight, you can physically open your eyes, but you cannot really see. And that is our natural condition. And I want to come back to that. That is all of our natural condition. But that if Christ opens a person's eyes, then we can actually see. 
And he can open our eyes and give us sight despite all kinds of barriers. And I want to look at three that you see in Saul's life. First off, objections. And what I mean here are like intellectual objections to believing in Jesus, seeing Jesus. Second, emotions, especially anger. And then the third is the aftermath. In other words, okay, so let's say I believe in Jesus and I follow him. Then what's all the fallout from doing that? All of those can function as barriers to really seeing Christ. And man, Jesus burst through all of those and made him see when he did not ask to see and was not trying to find Jesus to give him sight. Jesus bursts in and gives it to him. So let's look at this. Christ can give you sight despite objections. And I want to show you a detail in verse 11. This is when the Lord is speaking to this man named Ananias. He's a disciple. And, and he refers to the second part of verse 11. He says, go to the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And I want to make sure that we know a little bit more about Tarsus because it's not, fa- it's not famous like a Rome or in Athens, Greece. But historians, uh, there's even a first century geographer who wrote about this city, said that the seat of learning in this part of the world, in this day, it wasn't Athens. And it wasn't even Alexandria where the great library and the great manuscripts and books were located. The seat of learning was Tarsus. And really, in its day, it was the equivalent of Oxford, England. You know, if you've ever been to Oxford, I haven't, but I'm told, I've been to Cambridge, that you almost can't tell where the university stops and the town starts because their lives have grown together so much. The university and the town are just full of learning and reading and absorbing and high culture, people operating at a high threshold. That was the city of Tarsus. One historian said it was like a university city. Except there's one way that it was not like Oxford. Uh, An Oxford, a Cambridge, a Harvard, people come from other places, other countries, and go there. That was not the case in Tarsus. The learning, the intellect, the high culture of Tarsus was for the citizens of Tarsus who usually didn't stay. They then went out and did important things, as did Saul. Grew up there, absorbed all that stuff. Then went, now this is not in the passage, but it is in the book of Acts. He went to Jerusalem to study under a guy named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was renowned as a rabbi, master, academician. In other words, if you wanted to get the top, elite, highest threshold, intense biblical study and Jewish interpretation you would study under Gamaliel. Saul did, and he was trained to be a a learned Pharisee. Now, when you hear the word Pharisee, we kind of go like, ugh. You know how there's different kinds of monks? There's Augustinian monks, there's Benedictine monks, and there's Carthusian monks. There's a kind of monk called Trappist. And if you ever see the name of a Trappist monk, there are four letters after his name. You look at the monk's name, I want you to know what to do if you bump into a Trappist monk. You'll get the monk's name and then four letters after that. It'll say O-C-S-O. And that stands for Order 
of the Cistercians of the strict observance. That's hardcore because like, if you're a monk, you're not, if you're any kind of monk, you're not living this super loosey-goosey life anyway. But like even the monks look at the Trappists and go, yeah, they're hardcore. They're strict. And really, in a way, that's like a window in, into the Pharisees because even somebody who was a faithful, devout, strict person of Jewish upbringing really wants to obey God's law, really wants to stay within the guardrails, they would look at the Pharisees and say, they are the strict observance. He was that with all the intellectual firepower. So here's what you need to know. The way he shows up, everything about his mental infrastructure is predisposed not to believe in Jesus. Because if, if he accepts the premise that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, if he accepts the premise that God on Mount Sinai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, actually took on flesh and looked like a Jewish peasant, a man from Nazareth, if he actually accepts that premise and that he's risen from the dead and is enthroned, it's going to just, it's going to rewire everything he's learned. Uh, Let me give you a parallel. Came across this recently. Um, A guy named Richard Lewinton, Harvard undergrad, Ph.D. from Columbia University, held an uh, an endowed chair at Harvard University as professor of zoology and biology. Erudite, uh, wrote, spoke, go-to person, big spokesman for evolutionary biology. He wrote a piece in the New York Times, uh, or New York Review of Books, 20 years ago. This is really interesting. He said... I'm going to tell you why I and my colleagues are materialists. And you understand what that term means? If you're a materialist, you reject the supernatural. You believe that really all there is is matter and energy and time and chance. He says, all right, I'm going to lay my cards on the table and tell you why I and my colleagues are materialists. Here's what he says. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. Now, understand what he's saying. Some of the things we believe are absurd. He's saying that. In spite of science's failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community of unsubstantiated just-so stories, Because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. Why? And here's where he tells you. He says materialism is absolute because we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Capital D, capital F. And Dr. Lewinton is an elderly man now, but if I ever had the chance to meet him, I I would tell him, thank you for your candor. People rarely lay their cards on the table like that. He's saying... In one way, very different than Saul, and in one way, similar to Saul. Saul's a theist. Lewinton is an atheist. Very different backgrounds, Jew, Gentile. But but what's the similarity? If I buy the premise of Jesus, it will undo everything I think. 
And I'm not going to do that. And what I want you to, to, to see and feel and let it wash over you is that Jesus burst in and overcame all that. And immediately, all that learning, like so fast that within days, Saul walks into the synagogue to evangelize. All that learning, all that data went shoo, because it made sense now. Because he could see. And if you want proof of that, later in the book of Acts, when now Paul goes to the city of Athens and he's asked to speak at the Areopagus. This is where the thinkers, this is where the philosophers and the intellectuals are. He does it and he can hang with them and he can quote their Greek writers and their Greek poets back to them in Greek to tell them about Jesus. And I really want you to hear that. I mean, if you're here this morning... And you are somebody who would say, my primary objections to believing in Jesus, to buying this. First, I would say, thank you for being here. Thank you for even listening so far. I I would ask you, don't dial your questions down. I I would ask you to embrace them fully. But, But prepare for this. That if Jesus gives you sight, it will reinterpret everything you've learned. And he's willing to do that. The second thing is this. Christ gives sight despite emotion. Uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, but Luke records this account of Saul's conversion three times. First, Luke describes it to you. And then two times later in the book, you, you you get a quote of Paul telling the story. Paul telling the story of his own conversion. And in all three of those accounts, of course, there's lots of overlap. One detail that's brought out every time is that Paul was a furious man. I I want you to feel this. He wasn't just trying to be like a thorn in the side of this strange Jewish sect called the way. He was trying to do the like spiritual equivalent of genocide, exterminate it, kill men, kill women, kill kids if you have to, rid the earth of this blasphemous sect forever. And it infuriated him. Uh, let, me give you, let me give you a couple of quotes here. Here's one. Here's how Saul says it later in the book, or Paul. I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He's not just a cold, calculating man. He's raging. He's emotional. And in this passage, how does Luke describe it? Look in verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder. And commentary after commentary, paused on that phrase and said, this is, this is fairly rare Greek terminology. It's really more the language of a wild beast. Like a wild beast just tearing into something and snorting with rage. That, that's the terminology that Luke reaches for to say this was Saul's emotional state as he approached the church. He was furious at it and furious at Jesus. Why is he so mad? And it's one thing to say, yeah, he sure is mad. Yeah, why is he so mad? What he heard Christianity doing, really, and let's, let's not make it out as an abstraction. What he heard Jesus and his followers doing is not just nudging on points 
of agreement or disagreement. He heard them making claims that if these were true, they would undo what was ultimate for him. And the Jewish term for that is blasphemy. Blasphemy carried capital punishment. And here's the thing. We, we don't traffic a lot in like terminology like blasphemy or heresy. But make no mistake about it. There are still orthodoxies. There are still blasphemies. In other words... Something that's just part of the human condition is there are things in all of us and in all people that are so ultimate that if someone comes and challenges them, it can't be a calm discussion. You mess with that, you mess with that thing that is in the core of my being, that's when fury comes out. That's when rage comes out. Let me go back to uh, Rosaria Butterfield, the way she writes about herself. This is from an article several, several years ago in Christianity, Christianity Today, and uh, the title is My Train Wreck Conversion. Here's the beginning of the article. Now, keep in mind, English literature, feminist studies, tenured radical uh, lesbian activist. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it rather than to deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. So she was neutral. No, I mean, like, could anyone be more honest about their emotional predisposition to say, I'm absolutely opposed to this thing? And she used the word wrath. Why was she wrathful? Because she understood enough to know this touches on things that are ultimate. For her being able to say, there is no absolute truth. Truth is socially constructed, and it's a power grab. That was an ultimate commitment for her. And you've got someone coming along saying, I am the truth. And no one comes to the Father but through me. The claims he would make on her life, the claims he would make on her body, ultimate in anger. And God brought her to himself. (laughs) And the way he did it was she was... It was in the uh, 90s, and she was doing research about the presidential campaign. Pat Robertson was making a a run for the presidency, and he's writing about feminism and feminists and that they're kind of like closet witches. And, and boy, it really rubbed her the wrong way, but she wanted to approach it as an academician. And so she decided to do some research, and she decided to meet with an evangelical to kind of get it from the horse's mouth. And she called a local pastor who, as it turns out, was, and this isn't always the case, relational. And he liked her. And he and his wife liked her. And they liked to have her over and eat and drink. And she was ideologically opposed to air conditioning because of its effect on the environment. And they learned that so they would kill the air conditioning when she came over because they liked her. And they didn't want to set up unnecessary boundaries. And if they went too, too long without hearing from her, they would just touch base and say, I was just thinking about you, want to see how you're doing. And against 
intellectual barriers, emotional barriers, moral barriers, Christ burst in and gave her sight against emotional fury, intellectual infrastructure that cannot let him in. Jesus bursts in and says, Saul, you may see. And I want you to see me. But there's also this other thing because, you know, if we, uh, if we just stop there, it can kind of seem like, man, Saul was mean, and then he's not mean. Saul's like killing Christians, and now he's making Christians. Awesome. And not really come to grips with what this did to his life. Go back to the passage, verse 15. This is the part where Jesus says to this Christian man, Ananias, he says, go find Saul. This is enemy number one. And understandably, Ananias says, Lord, he's come to drag Christians off, tie them up and bind them and, and take them back to Jerusalem, I'm sure, to their death. And here's what the Lord says, verse 15. The Lord said to him, Ananias, go Uh, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And get this next part. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And man, did that happen. Gentiles and Jews. Look at how this plays out. This is right after he's been given sight, physical and spiritual to see. Verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Like we're used to thinking about him doing that his whole life. When you went in the temple in Jerusalem or you went in a synagogue, you went in as a devout Jew to practice. And he walks into a synagogue to say, my kinsmen, my brothers, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in the man Jesus. He knows how that's going to land in their ears. But he knows it's true. Verse 22. Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And I kind of regret that I didn't include the next verse in the bulletin. Because if you stop there, it just kind of sounds like, and he turned into evangelistic Iron Man. And the next verse is, and and the Jews immediately began to plot to kill him. And besides the danger of that and the physical injuries that he underwent at the hands of Jews and Gentiles, besides all that, he's not a cartoon character. He's a human being. And to lose the relationships that you had with practically all your relatives, all your friends, all your colleagues. He talked about Judaism in work terms. He said, I was rising in the ranks of Judaism. I was, I was advancing beyond my peers to, to lose them in one fell swoop. swoop is painful. So what does he say about that? When you look in his letters, do you, do you find him saying, and sometimes I wonder if I did the right thing? I would point you to his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. And he talks about his background. He said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews circumcised on the eighth day, 
tribe of Benjamin, persecuted the church. As to righteousness, a Pharisee. In other words, I had it going on. And I count all that rubbish. For the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And earlier in that letter, he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he's not posturing. He means that is what I've actually found to be true. And what he experienced is what Jesus said would happen. And I would say this to us too, because we forget this over and over and over. If Christ gives you sight and brings you to himself, understand you will be misconstrued. You will be misunderstood. Opposition and pushback and resistance in your life will not decrease. It will increase. And you will see the one that your heart longs for. He is the fairest of 10,000 and the altogether lovely one. Because what our heart dreams but doesn't want to even believe could possibly be true is that there's someone who is God and man whom I crave. And when you see Jesus, you realize there he is. Meat and drink for your soul. If you're here and don't know that you're a Christian, I don't know what barriers you bring. Intellectual ones? Um, emotional ones? It may, it may not be emotions against Jesus so much as how Christians have handled you. I would believe you if you told me that. But it may be the aftermath that you're already doing the, doing the math about. Wow. I'm starting to think about this. I can't believe I'm starting to think about it. But what about my friends who don't believe this? Am I going to say to them, you're wrong and I'm right? And what will that do to those relationships? Or if I'm really saying that I believe these things, that there's only one way to God through this man, am I saying I'm going to God and you're not? Let me be honest, I have no idea how the aftermath will shake out for you in your relationships, your communication, and your feelings. But I'm saying that there's somebody who went ahead of you on this. And when he, when he not, didn't just have everything to lose, he lost it. His experience was to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you let him handle that. But to the Christians in the room, I would say this. You know, it's easy to read this passage and go, wow, that is cool how Christ gave Saul sight. His enemy gave him sight. Awesome. And wow, I'm kind of thinking right now about my friend that's like real thinky. My PhD friend that always takes me to task for being a Christian. Wow, that would be awesome if Christ gave him sight, gave her sight. Yep, that would be awesome. That's what we pray for. You know what's easy to miss? Is our own story. You know, I, I'm downtown a lot. Obviously, work here, meet with people here. In downtown, sometimes you'll, I'll, I'll fairly regularly see blind men. See a blind man. Usually not with a dog, usually with a cane. 
If you were sitting in a downtown restaurant or a coffee shop and you looked out the window and you saw a blind man and you saw him stop at a, a corner and you could tell that he thought someone was standing beside him and no one was and he began talking to someone who wasn't there, would you laugh at him? Or if you, if you saw him stumble, would you think, why are you stumbling? Wouldn't you pity him? And, and to really just maybe drive the metaphor home a little bit more, what if you had been blind? And somehow you regained your sight. If you, with your regained sight, watched a blind man, would you think, what an idiot? Wouldn't your heart go out to that person? And wouldn't it humble you that you get to see? And presently he doesn't get to see. Wouldn't you want him to see? See, what what we are famous for is being mad at those who cannot see. And we show our hand when we do that because you know what we show? Is that we think that we showed up with sight. There isn't a woman or a man in this room who showed up with sight. If we see, it is because Christ burst in and gave us sight. Shouldn't that breed humility? and sympathy and to really, really want those who can't see yet to see. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the one who alone can raise the dead and can free the prisoner, can make the deaf hear, and can give the blind sight. We pray that you would do so in a great way in our city of Greenville and to the ends of the earth. We pray for the person in this room right now who maybe is frightened to believe, to be given sight for what it will mean for their life, their work, their family, their colleagues. As you come close to him or her, show them the way. Father, for those who have been given sight in this room, we thank you that you gave us sight. And we say this in Christ's name. Amen.